it was nothing that he said other than picture an impact. And I eventually got myself together and sort of laughed and said, impact, what, you know, what do you mean impact? Because that was the furthest thing from my mind. I just wanted people to know. I just wanted them to see what was happening and to pay attention and do something about it. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast. Not just another podcast. This is the 200th episode of It's All Journalism. And in studio today with me are two delightful people that I, that I care very much about who were around in the early days of the podcast, uh, Megan Clority and Jolie Lee. They were the two other founding producers of this podcast. Hi, guys. Hey. They got out when the game was good. Um, I'm continuing. <laughs> this is an intervention to try to get me to stop podcasting. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> not but, uh, no, we, we all have very positive uh, uh, feelings about our friendship and, and about – you know, sort of how we sort of started this and, and where we are, are now. Now, Jolie, how it used to be was we were all students at American University and we were wrapping up. We graduated in, two, in May of 2012, yes. four years ago. And as we were wrapping up, I had this sort of wild idea that we should do something like a podcast or something. And both of you were very encouraging to me. And Jolie and I used to sit next to each other in uh, at federal news radio and we kept bouncing ideas and you kept encouraging you said we should do this we should do this and so we kind of developed this idea and then i was just the third wheel you were the third no (laughs) No, but you specifically i remember i remember reaching out to you and you actually said yeah i'm in and and that was and for me that that meant a lot and it meant a lot that you both you know for me it was really kind of important to get to have us all involved because we all kind of came out of that really really positive experience at American University. I think we're, we're all at a place in our careers that we probably didn't quite think we were going to be at four years ago. We may not yeah. be doing all the same sort of things mm-hmm. that we learned, and we're all sort of doing different things. So, Julie, you pieced out. <laughs> first. <laughs> first. Out. Pretty, yes. pretty. You just yes. like, it. Uh, I'm leaving. Uh, I got to do. And you. And, uh, but you, you had my moral support. Yeah, I time. know. And, and you came on the podcast. <laughs> and I forced scared. you to come onto the podcast later on. I, I, um, that was but that's also because she had a job where she was traveling a lot, yeah. actually. And it was not really feasible. Well, let's talk about let's talk about your journey then. You uh, you you were on the podcast before talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, the documentary you did with Mishi, yes, um, who was a professor of ours at American University, and that ended up on Showtime. Talk about the jo- documentary. Remind yeah, us. It's um, it, it was a documentary series called Years of Living Dangerously, um, and it won an Emmy uh, for a documentary series. And they're actually producing season two right now. Oh neat. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm not involved in, but so we need to start it over and say we're here with the Emmy award winning. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> The Emmy Award winning. Well, then we get around to what you're you're the the Murrow Award winning. Re- yeah, it's not, it doesn't quite have the same ring. No, the regional the regional award winning. That the, sounds very heavy. The regional forward. radio award winning. Uh, Megan Clarity, you were journalist of the year last year, right? Yeah, I was. I Yay. was. I've rigged the system twice in a row to be reporter of the year, and I'm yeah. working on a third year. You're Let's actually see. pretty good doing doing crime stories, mostly. I, I guess I am. I actually I like covering crime, which is, is sounds makes me sound like I'm a crazy person, but no, I enjoy it. Yeah, 
Crimes yeah. and courts, mostly. Crimes and courts. You were today covering a bus hijacking in Washington, D.C. Yes. A man who gets on the bus, overpowers the bus driver, passengers get off. He takes control of the bus, drives it, hits somebody else, and kills them. Wow. Very wow. uplifting. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, they throw me like a panda story just to like change it up. To, to clean the palate. Yeah. To clean the palate. Well, you had that. What was, the, what was the case, that crazy case, crazy case? From Alexandria that you... Uh, the serial killer. The serial killer. Um, over 10 years, Charles wow. Severance. Wow. Um, yeah. Indicted on three or two capital murder charges and a first-degree murder charge, and he was found guilty on all 10 counts. Uh, and uh, did, he get, did he get the death penalty for that? He did not. No, oh. they were never seeking the death penalty. Oh, okay. That. Yeah. yeah. Just get him away, put him in jail. Yeah, and sort of the big, um, the other big story that hasn't concluded yet that I was following last year is this man- the mansion murders. Do you remember those? Yeah. The family in Northwest and their housekeeper that was taken, they were taken hostage and killed, and then they ended up burning the house. This is, I sound, this yeah. is not. Death girl. Po- yeah. How, how do you Positive. keep covering it without letting it, because I kind of left the daily news world. Um the glamorous yeah, that, world of, that... of TV documentaries. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> but, um, you know, when I was doing daily news, um, you know, that that sort of thing would affect me. And Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is this. It's it's just that, part, you know, it's eight hours of your day and then the mm-hmm. next day has been completely different. And it's usually not on the same case. And, I mean, very rarely in day turn shifts do you follow the same case unless you work for an employer that lets you kind of own a story. Yeah, like Severance took took months and months. You went up to um, Yeah, I mean, it took, West Virginia, all, all told right? it was like two plus years, but it wasn't every day for two years by no. any means. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I compartmentalize a little bit, but I also think that um, well, I, I think remember, my upbringing has a lot to do with it, to be honest. Yeah, with. well, you come from a, a home of journalists or a journalist. Yeah, uh, a and, and he would he would sort of talk about the stories that he did and it, just seeing how he handled it, and he kind of just it was work was work, and you the rest of his life was the rest it. of his life, and he didn't let it get to him. And I kind of don't either. Yeah, which isn't not That's to say great. that I don't care, or you no. don't feel about it, or I don't feel about it exactly. But I think if you let every single thing in, you would not last long. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not to to pile on to the other. I know that you you were on the scene when they um, did. You you went down to the the Navy Yard shootings, didn't you? I actually that was an interesting one. I I went to the. Um, the hospital, the MedStar Hospital, oh, okay. where all of the victims were taken. Um, so I never was on the scene of Navy Yard, okay. but I was part of sort of the team coverage. I remember, uh, I may, you know, what I was thinking of you were you. Were, it was when there was the fire at the Metro. You were outside trying yeah, to find that, people. That was like a movie scene. That was unreal. <laughs> I mean, and not to make light of it at all. I mean, people were very sick. It was yeah. really scary. Yeah. Um, but I was one of the first people because if you live in Washington or you know anything about our transit system. To say a train is stopped on the on the tracks is like, and it's a Tuesday. I mean, that happens all the time. So we heard that a train had stopped and it was causing delays. And they were like, why don't you head down there to L'Enfant Plaza? And I was like, I mean, really? Okay. okay. I mean, not like, you know, but and it was then, just sort of like, what's, and. Why what, is this what, any different? Exactly, then? exactly. And then I get down there and I was one of the first people there when they were coming out of the station and they all had this like black soot in their mouths and noses and they were like like literally throwing up in the street and ugh, it's horrible yeah. Oh so yeah i also so, didn't wear enough clothes that day i was like in a skirt and 
I was freezing. <laughs> it looked like, like <laughs> Susie Sunshine, the, the, the weather reporter. Well, right. it's, it goes back to like always have, you know, like a pair of pants and a pair of boots and a raincoat and all, you know, I didn't have any of that stuff. Just and I dress, kicked myself. Yes, yeah. for the uh, for the occasion. Exactly. Um, now, you're at you're at National Geographic or Nat Geo? Yeah, I'm at National Geographic now. Yep. Um, wrapping up soon, but um, I, I worked on the relaunch of the Explorer series. So yeah, that, it's been fun. So you've moved in pretty much into video, or yeah, maybe I have to research? say I really miss. Yeah, I was doing research, um, a little bit of post production during the editing process, but I have to say I really miss the kind of online world. So yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of at a crossroads right now. Are you but, still writing? Yeah. Um, not as much, and I miss that. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. It, Looking for some career advice from you guys. <laughs> oh, geez. You've come to the wrong place. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm still at the same place and I'm, I'm doing podcasts on the weekends. I. Um, but what I think is cool, Mike, is that you found your passion in this. You're, yeah. You love this. Oh, yeah. And you're good at it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm good, but I, I certainly enjoy it. Well, you've gotten Thank so you. much better. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The crit. Oh. That, you know, I'm just teasing. I, no, 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 I, I like no, no. to tease. I will. I will tell you. I will tell you the the little Megan voice in the back of my head <laughs> when I'm recording intros and outros. Okay, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta lift my energy up. I gotta be. I gotta be a little louder. I gotta be a little more. Um, you know, into it. And, and uh, the experiences, the many experiences where I'm trying to get people sort of. A, at ease before the, I turn on the mics or when I turn on the mics. Yeah. And this is, yeah, there was this one episode where um, we did the whole thing and I had Megan's uh, mic off the entire time because she was so <laughs> freaking loud. I could pick her up like, on my mic. I'm just going to turn you down all the way. No, I just <laughs> never, I didn't think I turned your mic on, but, um, ah, but that's times. that good, good times. times. Yeah. <laughs> you remember we, we used to transcribe episodes. Oh my, that, God. Oh my God. That was stupid. Wow. Because they used Why? to be, well, yeah, they used to be like 45 minutes to an hour long. I don't know if you're still doing that length, but that's a lot. We're doing logging. about 35 to 45 now. Um, once Every once in a while we'll do something really long, but but no. It's, and more often than not, they seem to be about 30-minute phone calls over, you know, over the phone or Skype. Um, so but the good, the good interviews. How, since, so I left the podcast, we were talking about this, I left the podcast around like, 135 yeah. maybe yeah and now we're at 200 yes. you're at 200 I'm i should 200. say well I've, i also do the podcast with amber healy and nicola grisco amber writes up the podcast and uh nicole helps me with the editing and production end of it has but, it changed and like morphed into something sort of different or does it have a different focus or well you know if you listened regularly <laughs> Well, that's why I'm here, Michael. I'm, I'm here to visit. Oh, no, no. I know. And shut up. Stories. This is why I don't come downstairs anymore. Fine. You can just um, cut this part out. No, no. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, I think it, it, it's more the same. I think it's a little tighter than it used to be. I think uh, it's funny that the, um, it took me, you know, many, many interviews to sort of begin to understand a lot of the the issues that were going on. And so... I find myself more often as I get in conversations with people remembering other podcasts and other things, and I'm sort of able to, you know, speak from more of a, yeah, we talked to somebody about this last year and, and for this aspect, mm. and bring sort of different aspects of the larger story of what's going on in journalism. So I would imagine, too, that the from the production side of it, you are much more informed than we were, and we had no idea what we were doing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, I, I even remember the point where, where Jolie and I actually asked Lisa, if we could actually use the studio, because it hadn't occurred to us how we would record this. And you're we like, you know, maybe we should see if we can use the studio. And of course, he was like, yeah, sure, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, that worked out. 
Huh? <laughs> that, that worked went, out. That yeah. worked out. That worked out really fine. Um, the other thing I want to say, and this is, I want to brought you guys in partly so I can, I had a, a forum where I could sort of make this announcement about, about what I'm doing in addition to the podcast is, um, and it's all kind of because of the podcast. One of the great things about it is I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of conferences, make presentations about podcasting, meet a lot of different people, meet a lot of different podcasters. And about the time that I went out to, uh, AAN, uh, conference last year, I, uh, to, I took the materials that I had had assembled to make a presentation about how to podcast, and I decided to put them online and create a, a, a space on our website where, you know, this is how you podcast. And then, for no other reason that I felt that here's some skills and things that I've learned along the way, and I kind of wanted to, to share them. And, and I did a similar presentation at ONA last year in California, and while I was at ONA, um, I was approached by a publisher uh, from Rutledge uh, Publishing House, and I just recently signed a contract to write a book about podcasting. Yay. Uh, wow. So, that's awesome. Congrats. So, uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I have a deadline in November, so I have to write a book between now and November. Well, you have to have a deadline, otherwise you would just yeah, exactly. pick out And, and actually, it's amazing how much a deadline sort of suddenly makes everything very serious. Yeah. And then when then you actually sign something where... Um, People have certain expectations, um, but it's you know I've I've got a plan and I've got people I'm going to talk to and and my intention is to continue doing the podcast as long as I can, um, and I think I should be able to. I've uh, I just like lined up like I want to say twelve interviews for the book, and in amongst them I've uh, made I think three other podcast interviews. So in amongst all of these many interviews I'm going to be doing, I'll continue to do podcast interviews and with Amber and Nicole's help, I should be able to post for a while, but it may get to a point where I, I might decide uh, it, because of the pressure, I may need to space episodes out, but my intention is to continue doing them the way that we, uh, well, and it might feed the book too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I meet other people. And, and what was, again, this is, this is a great thing about it is, is, you know, many of the sources I've been able to turn to are people who've been on the podcast. Uh, Tiffany Campbell, I did the uh, presentation at ONA with, she works at WBUR in Boston. She's, you know, she's uh, agreed to, you know, be a source and help me uh, make some contacts with people. So that's just sort of an example of some of the people. Um, but that's something that's that that I've got in my horizon. Congratulations! But, thank that's you. That's really exciting. Thank yes. you. Yeah, that's awesome. But I wanted to have have uh, uh, you know, like I said, a forum, a, a, a moment in the podcast where I could I could sort of make that announcement as we're as we're going through forward. You know, we're also coming up. In in a, in a week or two of our graduation, the fourth anniversary of our graduation, you know, I kind of alluded to it when we when we sort of started that, you know, we kind of why did why, well, let's let's start with this question first. Why did you go into the program? What what did you think you wanted to get out of it? <laughs> I'm not the person to ask. You, you, I'm not going to give you the answer that you want. Oh, I don't know. You just wanted what you wanted to. Well, you still wanted to be in TV, right? I mean, yeah. I I, I well. Hopefully that some somebody in TV is listening to this. I was at the point where my career had sort of stalled out and I didn't know what exactly I wanted, but I knew that all the skills that I wanted were online, right? But I wanted to stay in TV as well. So I was hoping to try and find a way to meld those two while taking the opportunity to restart my life a little bit and meet some new people and move back home and kind of shake up the the deck, if you will. So... That's why I got back into it. And then it was it was a great program in that they kind of gave you a taste 
of a lot of things, but maybe you didn't have an expertise by the time you left. So you knew what you were interested in, what you weren't interested in. <laughs> like, I'm not interested in Ruby on Rails or JavaScript by any means. Um, I'm not good at that. But I was interested in, like, the coding, um, like, the CSS aspect of it and video and taking pictures and stuff. So that sort of translated into a more visual focus of my radio job, which is yeah. an interesting mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, and then you went, well, you ended up... <laughs> It's yeah. Jolie Lee is the, the linking factor here because we both, yeah. I think, came here because of Jolie. She was... Uh, it's your fault. A, oh, yeah. An employee. <laughs> yeah, you guys are right. <laughs> yeah, so what did you, what did you, why did you take the program? Um, well, I was actually in China um, at the time I made the decision. I'd been there for a year teaching English in kind of this rural town. Um, and I had worked in journalism a little bit as a print reporter, but I knew to really get back in, I needed to be more well-rounded. Uh, you know, I didn't really have digital skills. And, you know, this program at AU sounded pretty great, like pretty, you know, like Megan said, you get a taste of everything. Um, and surprisingly, I like coding, too. Like, you wouldn't think yeah. there's something meditative about it, I have to yeah. say. Um, not that I think I want to be a coder, but um, you know, all of these can all of these skills can only help if yeah. you're a journalist today. Um, but you know, what I took away too is the fundamentals are still writing and reporting, mm -hmm. getting the facts right. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter what, what the medium, yeah, and, yes, and yes. storytelling, yes. And it absolutely. was kind of funny because the class. What was great about the class was that we had people from all types of people who had just recently gotten out of college to people who were older. I wasn't the oldest person in that class, surprisingly. Um, all, granted, the, the old people who were older than me had both were gone by like the third class, I think. Um, one of them rather, uh, I seem to remember stomping out in the middle of a class because he couldn't uh, stand it. Um, I, I actually, a lot of this, my story is very similar to, to Megan's in that I reached a point in my life. I'm much further along in my career than, than both of you. And, you know, I asked myself the five-year question, which I, I never did in my, my entire life because my whole, my whole life has been things are just going to happen the way they're going to happen. I never actually put any real planning into my, my career outside of, you know, from job to job to job. And I asked myself what I want to do in five years. And I still wanted to be a journalist, but I knew that I, I didn't want to be at the place I was at and that, that any job was going to be online for me. And that's why I got – and I found this program and it sounded perfect and I got into it. And, you know, every week through the people I – through through the things that we're teaching us, things we were talking about, but also the people I met, I got a lot out of this. The, 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 for, I learned a lot from everybody who was in that class. Mm -hmm. and, and that was – that was something that meant a lot to me. And so, and actually, again, it was, it was Jolie who let me know that there was a job available at Federal News Radio and it allowed me to escape my previous job so that I could start working at three in the morning. <laughs> and, and the rest is, is, is whatever it is. But it's funny, you know, that, you know, four years later, where, where we're kind of at and where some of our classmates are at, that there are only, I think, a handful of them are, who are 
strictly using journalism, but there are some that are doing really well mm-hmm. in, in journalism. Well, and beyond um, necessarily using the skills every day, it's like even learning a little bit about the about them, whether it's in a you know this program or elsewhere. It's like you can appreciate so much more yeah. when you open up something like Snowfall or like even yeah. just, you know, uh, well, the, I can make the Boston that. Globe website. I mean, just the homepage. You can appreciate if you try and code one little site how difficult that is and where the skills are, you know. Yeah. Make that make that photo float up into that corner yeah. of the website. <laughs> this is really basic coding uh, that we learned. Um, so that's pretty much all I, I wanted to have you guys come in. Just to touch base with you to sort of help me sort of celebrate this 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 milestone, uh, reminisce a little bit. Um, we have a uh, an interview that I did that's going to go with this. Uh, I did a separate introduction. Um, it's because <laughs> this is, this is this is the the planning and all of this. Once I began talk, telling you what the the project was or the interview was, it, it was clear that it was much more serious than our conversation was going to be. Mm. But it's a, it's a good it's a good interview. And uh, I'll have an intro with that. But thank you both for coming in. It's thank great to you. see you both. Congratulations on thank 200. You. Thank you. Well, and thank you both because you both helped, believe it or not. Um, you we both, <laughs> believe it or not. Despite you. Despite I you. I 200 episodes. I had to, that's why I had to bring you in so I could show you. So, no, this was, I had a great time doing it and a great time working with both of you. And so I just wanted to thank more. you. Two, 200 more. Oh, my God. I got to write a book in there somewhere. Okay. Well, that's all I've got. So thank you again for coming in. The following is an interview I did with photojournalist Paul Watson and playwright Dan O'Brien. Paul won a 1994 Pulitzer Prize for a photo he took of a dead American being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu. The photo not only changed American involvement in the war in Somalia, it impacted Paul's life in many profound ways. Dan wrote a 90-minute drama about Paul's experience. A theater J here in D.C. is presenting a production of Dan's play, The Body of an American, through May 22nd. I'll have a link on our website with ticket information. Now, here's my interview with Paul Watson and Dan O'Brien. So Paul Watson and Dan O'Brien are joining me on the phone today. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hello. To start off with, Paul, what's it like having a play written about you? It is a bizarre experience. You know, I'm I'm a journalist. Although I try to write well and I have seen plays, I'm not of that world. And it's an extraordinary experience to be collaborating with someone like Dan O'Brien, who's a true artist. I've said numerous times, and believe it to the depths of me, that Dan is able to express truths that I've tried many ways to do in both words and pictures, but simple prose just can't get to it. And Dan's work has succeeded in ways that I couldn't imagine. Now, Paul, I understand that you actually haven't seen this play performed yet? I have not seen it, and I haven't read it, and I won't. Uh, There's a few reasons for that. The simplest is it scares me. It's about things I've spent a very long time trying to forget, and it's very painful to even, even think about it and speak about it, let alone sit in a chair and and relive it as I watch 
people acted out. So I'm just not going to go there. But I have watched the reactions of people who have seen it, ordinary people, I'll call them. And again, it's extraordinary how Dan has touched their hearts and got them to think about the very things that I've been dealing with in my head for so many years. And, and when that happens, there's an extraordinary transformation of sorts where people start to speak themselves about the war that's in their own hearts. And that's really where I've been trying to get, and Dan has brought us there. You know, I'll, I'll interrupt to say that the admiration is mutual between Paul and I. I, I think in many ways much more highly of what he does as a journalist than I do of what I do as a poet and a playwright. And I think it's something about what what we're able to do together that's rare uh, and interesting and special and perhaps moving. Uh, you know, Paul hasn't seen the play, but so much of the play is, consists of his own words. It obviously consists of his own story, but the play is derived from his memoir. It's derived from emails he and I have exchanged over the, the years, and it, uh, it's derived from recordings of our conversations. So it's, even though it's, it's also a play set in verse, just to complicate things, but it's trying to be something very close to docudrama. So when Paul sees, you know, very moved audiences, they are very much moved, not just by whatever I've been able to do or the actors or designers or producers, but they're very moved by, by what he's what he shared with me and with the audience with his own writing and his own conversation. So what was it that inspired you to about Paul's story to write a play? You know, in many ways, that's the story of the play, because the, the Dan character, Dan, you know, I'm in the play to some degree, as it's a documentary. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the play, he hears, just as I did in quote-unquote real life, he hears Paul on Fresh Air in 2007, telling the story of the photograph he took of a fallen U.S. soldier in the streets of Mogadishu, photograph that won in the Pulitzer Prize. And... It was that story in particular and that story of how Paul heard a voice, the voice of that soldier, say to him, if you do this, I will own you forever. Meaning, if you take this picture, I will own you forever. And Paul took the picture, obviously. And it was particularly that story in that moment, the story where I felt a diminished, obviously, but no less um, visceral sense of haunting you know, pass through the speaker, the headphones, to me. And I, and, uh, and I didn't know why. I didn't know why this person, this story, you listen to NPR, Fresh Air, it's often chock full of intense, dramatic, true stories. Uh, and there was something deeply unnerving, inspiring about Paul's story, and even an over-identification with him as a person. I had a kind of eerie feeling like I knew him pretty well, when of course I'd never met him. So, you know, the play and the process of writing the play became about me trying to figure out what was this connection about. And the end of the play, I think, gives, gives some answers as to that. Uh, spoiler alert. I'll, I'll keep those to myself, but there are some uh, <laughs> some suggested answers for why Paul's story was so moving to me. Now, Paul, you've been a, a, a photojournalist, a journalist for 30, was it 35 years or so? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I lost count. The you know I'm uh, I sort of lost my faith in journalism over the past year because of the circumstances dealing with editors and a story that they tried to kill. So I'm uh, something else I'm trying to forget about, but it's roughly I think twenty five thirty years. So can can we talk a little bit about uh, the events leading up to when you took the picture? Um, you were in uh, Mogadishu at the time, and or Somalia, covering the the U.S. presence there and the war that was going on there. That's right, and it, it's important, I think, for for your listeners to understand because uh, post nine eleven, there's there's a public view of war reporting that I think is much different than what I was doing in those days and what a small group of other colleagues were doing. In those days, we were just reporters in a city living in a crummy hotel and going out on the street every day and covering a conflict. And so, you know, one day a a colleague would get killed over a dispute, um, uh, you know, for money uh, for the car they were renting, or people would get killed, you know, simply by getting in the crossfire, that sort of thing. So there was this very bizarre routine of going out in the street, covering the war, coming back, uh, writing your story, usually in my case, after or while drinking several cans of beer and maybe smoking some pot, and then doing it all again the next day. So you you find yourself over a period of months, and I was I was in and out of Somalia for a long time, starting with the fam starting with the Civil War actually, then through the famine, and then into this operation which was the U.S.-led operation to catch a warlord named Muhammad Farah Deed. So on this treadmill, while the rest of the world had pretty much lost interest, and a group of colleagues had been murdered, so most journalists had left, suddenly we started to see Somalis shooting rocket-propelled grenades at helicopters. And at first they were ineffective, but they finally shot one down. And this is before the events of October 3rd, 4th, which people will know from the great movie Black Hawk Down. When that first helicopter was shot down, American body parts were paraded in the streets of Mogadishu. I reported that. I took photographs of people holding body parts, and the Pentagon denied it. So when it happened again on a much bigger scale on October 3rd, 4th, I was determined to get proof that time so they couldn't deny it twice. And that's uh, that was the day when you, you took the photograph that um, you know most people have seen, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning photo? That's right. There, there's actually two pictures. One is a full body image, which was published by Time magazine. But the first image the public would have seen is a half body image which, you know, I can describe the circumstances of this if you're interested. It was moved around the world by Associated Press, not because I worked for Associated Press, but because I needed a way to get film developed and then images transmitted to my newspaper in Canada. And the way I did that was to get Associated Press to pick it up at the airport in Nairobi, Kenya for me. They met an aid flight which I put the film on, and then the deal was they could move it around the world for free if they would only send the images I asked them to to my newspaper. 
and I'd done it a few times before, not with AP, but with Reuters, their competitor. On this particular day, Reuters said that they wouldn't do that deal the way it had normally been done, which was to market Canada out, which guaranteed that none of my newspaper's competitors would get the images. They said, we can't do that on something of this size. So I said, you can't have the film. So I phoned a guy I knew named Reed Miller, who was the bureau chief for the Associated Press in Nairobi. He said, I'll meet the plane. And he did that. He stood on the tarmac when the aid flight landed. The captain got out. He said, if you got film, he had it. And then AP moved those pictures. The picture that they moved was the half-body image because it doesn't show the full naked body of the dead American soldier, a staff sergeant named William David Cleveland. That's the second image I made after realizing that the first image showed part of his genitals. And I realized that, that no one would publish it, probably, because people have a greater aversion toward the human body, it seems, than the desecration of a corpse. That turned out to be right. AP moved the picture, and then it went from there. I had no sense, really, that they were going to touch it. All I wanted to do was get the image to my newspaper and then have an argument with an editor to try to persuade him or her to publish it. What were you thinking at that time as far as what you wanted to tell from that from those photos? I knew that this was spiraling down, this conflict, that innocent people were getting killed, and the world wasn't paying attention. It's worth remembering that right around this time, there was a, you know, a lot of unrest in Moscow. I think it was Boris Yeltsin leading effectively rebel forces against the Soviet government, if I remember it right. So the world's attention was focused on tanks in the streets in Moscow. Somalia wasn't a blip on anyone's radar. All I wanted to do was, was somehow get people's attention so that they would realize how far off the rails this thing had gone. And what type of reaction did you see that came out of that photo? I mean, obviously, you, the, the, the photo received the appeal surprise, but, you know, in, in the, the immediate aftermath and in, in the weeks, the months that followed, what, what did you see happen? Well, you know, the, again, it's, it's worth remembering, I'm alone in, a, in an almost vacant building. There's a couple of other journalists there, but I'm alone in a in what was then the Reuters Bureau that night, as usual, drinking beer, smoking pot, watching a fuzzy rebroadcast on a TV with a coat hanger as an antenna of CNN, which was showing the unrest in, in Moscow live. And the, the satellite phone, which Reuters had left behind after their journalists were murdered uh, a few months before this, it rang, and it never rang because nobody... No one from Reuters was there, so I wondered, who could that be? And I picked it up, and it was a guy from New York Newsday, they called it in those days, a reporter. And he started asking me questions. I was in a fog anyway because of what I'd been drinking, but even worse because I was, I was traumatized and didn't know it. And, you know, the world was basically falling apart around me. And the, the reporter finally caught on that I was was not really clicking to what he was saying. And he, he finally said, you don't know what impact this picture is having, do you? And I, I literally collapsed on the line. It was, it's the first memory I have of a traumatic reaction that I've had many times since, where a switch just flicks in my 
mind, or like a door that a, a door that opens on a dark place. And I, I just I couldn't speak. I just broke down crying. It, it was nothing that he said other than picture an impact. And I, I eventually got myself together and sort of laughed and said, "Impact? What? You know, what do you mean impact?" Because that was the furthest thing from my mind. I just wanted people to know. I just wanted them to see what was happening and to pay attention and do something about it. In impact, you know, to me was just the wrong word. That's not what I was looking for. You were looking for, for someone to see what you were seeing and maybe understand. That's exactly right. And understand the situation as you saw it and maybe that, feel. That's exactly right. And, and, and you know, what, what I always tried to do as a journalist was be an ordinary person often in extraordinary circumstances, but bring other ordinary people with me, assuming that, that they, like I, would reach the same conclusions. You know, once you get past all of the political noise and the propaganda and everything else, and you just experience these places as ordinary people do, the conclusions are pretty plain to, to, to reach. I, I just wanted to bring them along with me. You you were a war correspondent. You were you're in Africa. How how did you end up there? Where what was your where did you start out and and how did you get down this path? You know, I I developed a love affair with Africa way back when I was a teacher of English in sort of the Canadian equivalent of the Peace Corps. At the time, I was a volunteer with the World University Service of Canada, and you do two years teaching, and I, I taught English as a second language to girls in a remote school in the country of Malawi in Central Africa, which at the time was run by a really quirky dictator named, you know, his full title was His Excellency the Life President in Gwazi, Dr. H. Kamuzu Banda, which sort of encapsulates Africa in, uh, in the 1990s. You know, once you're hooked, you're hooked on Africa, and I, I just kept going back. I couldn't get enough of the place. So, how was your, how was your, you know, after taking that photo and the experiences you had in the aftermath of it, how has your perspective sort of changed about the the photo? I mean, is it still, you is know, it the, still that powerful an incident to to you? It is. I just wish I hadn't been involved. It changed me in a way, and it still hurts me in a way that I wish. I hadn't had anything to do with it. But at the same time, I'm glad that I did it because somebody needed to do it. And the other people who would have done it, colleagues, friends, were all either dead or had left the country. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, people think about, you know, pill surprise then, and, you know, they, they kind of put the significance on that, that this one, a, a surprise, this one, a prize. And, but it's sort of, you know, in some ways it kind of takes away from the fact that of what the impact of the photo is, um, in the story that it's telling, it's not just a prize winner. It's something that, that it was communicating an, um, an idea or a feeling, a moment, and trying to translate that. You know, it's just not the sort of image you put on your wall, and it's not the sort of image that people return to very often. There are images from Vietnam that have an artistic feel to them. They're, they're war and they're suffering, but they're made by professional photographers who can, like Dan does, bring you to a difficult place the way artists do. And, you know, I call myself a photographer because I professionally made pictures, but I'm not a great photographer and I'm not an artist. So 
Uh, I did what I had to do, but I, I couldn't do it in a way that would, would make it something I want to look at ever again. Well, I think maybe you're selling yourself short in, in the fact that it's something that you took and that you had a, a personal relationship with. You know, Granted, I, I don't think it's an image that – I agree with you. I don't think it's an image that people would necessarily hang on their wall. But, you know, you accomplished something with that. You you related something. Uh, you communicated a feeling, a, a thought, a moment. And, you know, that in and of itself, you know – well, it's journalistic certainly and – in many ways, I think can be transformative as as artists transformative. So, you know, the some of what I'm about to say comes with age, maybe wisdom, a bit of superstition. You know, a lot of it comes from from what has happened with Dan's play. I really think that I was there doing something that was part of something much bigger. I, I was the vessel, in a sense, of a message. Um, you know, they, I don't want to sound grandiose because it's not that sort of thought, but that, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. Dan has done what he's supposed to do, and so the it's not it's not an accomplishment of a person. It's a message that had to be heard. It has to be heard again through the work that's Dan doing and the you know the actors that perform it, and I hope again and again and again until more people start to understand what's at the root of this. I have similar experiences I've not, in in seeing as an older person not as a, a photographer like you but in seeing your perspective sort of change and things happen in your life and in other people's lives and realizing you know there's some things you can't you can't control but you know there are moments that you're a part of that it's important that you're a part of it that you're you're, you're it's important that you're telling a particular story. I know that I've I've written stories I've covered events that it's important that I'm there. It doesn't mean that I'm con that's, controlling it or whatever. That's right. And when you you know if you play the film backwards to to put it that way, you know what are the what's the likelihood of me encountering somebody like Dan O'Brien? who then writes a play that has been performed uh, in stages in both Europe and the United States and really got not only rave reviews, but, but really touched a lot of people and is continuing to do that. That's just an improbable story. And all of the, all of the odd things that have happened along the way, synchronicities, just things that you can't explain. I think uh, Paul and I have, referred to it as a spooky sense of serendipity with this with this play. And with the two I've written two collections of poetry about Paul as well as the libretto for an opera. And we're even in the midst of writing something new. So it's kind of it's an ongoing collaboration, very peculiar, very specific collaboration. But for me as well, it's really carried a, a certain um, you know, there's something something else going on. It's given it shape and, and meaning and movement. Well, I think we all have skills that we hone and we develop and we, we put ourselves in situations and places for things to happen to us. And we're like tuning forks. We pick things up. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you know, you were listening to the radio and you were, a, because of who you are and the skills that you have and the way you listen and think, whatever he, he said was what you right. picked up. And that's what tuned in and, and created this thing that you're doing now, this play, this relationship that you have. And it's, yeah. you know, it would not have occurred if, if, 
Paul wasn't out where he was at and, you know, hadn't gone right. through the experiences that he had and been on the radio to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. There's so much circumstance. It's like you can't plan these things. You can't, you know, Paul couldn't have gone, oh, I'm back from Africa. I want, I want to have a play written about me. That was probably the last right. thing in his mind. But right. was, but because circumstances. That's right. That, that's right. And look, the I haven't seen the play, so I don't know. I'm talking <laughs> through my ears here. But I know that a portion of it, at least, takes place in the high Arctic. And, you know, the Dan will explain this better, but, you know, he, he said, let's let's meet and chat. And he, I think his first preference was Afghanistan. But that just didn't work. It didn't sound smart to me. So right. at some other point in the conversation, I said, I'm going to be in the Arctic. Why don't we do it there? And in the end, that's the perfect place to do it. You know, the, I actually you know, part, think the, part, first, the first plan was, was Bali. And okay, Bali. Bali which, <laughs> which sounded like a great vacation, but wasn't right for, you know, what the play is about. So when you said, I've got this new gig covering the Arctic and Aboriginal beat, I was jumping for joy. You know, there was something about, I've long been obsessed with the Arctic, you know, since I was a kid. That's just one thing. But the, to the, the Arctic as a setting for a place for people who are dealing with ghosts and trying to come to terms with ghosts was just absolutely perfect for me. Right. Now, that, none of that went through my head. It was just a convenience. It's like, I'm going to be in the Arctic. Why don't we do it there? But, and I had no idea. I had no idea Dan O'Brien had any interest or any knowledge of the Arctic. He, he knows more about the Arctic than I do. It's, it's sort of you're releasing yourself to circumstance that that whatever the I issue is and, and you know, pulling in your experience and sort of like playing off of each other in a way. That's right. But, I, you know, I will sound crazy. I, I don't apologize for crazy. it. <laughs> I, I think there's something more than just circumstance. Between between you or just uh, about the whole narrative that, assuming there's a narrative, the arc of your life experience, your experience as a photojournalist, and then the becoming the subject of a play, becoming a friend of a playwright, and then sort of this all just sort of rolling together and sort of this d this dance of uh, of inspiration around each other. I feel it most in, in sort of the start of the relationship with Dan. Again, you know, he, he sent me an email. I, I don't have it, but it was something, you know, fairly bland about I'm, you know, I'm a playwright. Can I write a play about you? And, <laughs> and any journalist will tell you, it's like, yeah, sure. I think what I said was, if it doesn't cost me any money, you know, you can do anything you want. To go from sort of a shrug, yeah, okay, sure, to where we are today with everything, you know, the, it would take a book to explain everything that's happened since. It's not easily explained by pure coincidence in my head. Okay, well, tell us a little bit about uh, the play, Dan. Uh, when did you begin writing it? What was the process for you? After that first email, uh, that was 2007. You know, I, for the first time in my career, I didn't want to rush a play, I think as a younger playwright, I, if I had an idea, I wanted to write it as quickly as I could and show everybody or something. You know, and I had a feeling with this play that it was going to take time, that it should take time. Partly that was because I felt completely out of my depth. 
you know, I'd written a lot of historical dramas, a few contemporary plays about young people in New York. You know, I've never written anything remotely like Paul's experience and Paul's story. So I wanted to take my time with it. I also wanted to, you know, just build up trust between Paul and I. So that was largely just emails back and forth of, you know, sometimes I can't remember. I'm sure sometimes we emailed a few times a week and sometimes months and months would go by. And uh, the one concept I had at the beginning was because Paul's memoir was called Where War Lives, I thought it might be interesting to write to each other just about literally where we were, because Paul was based in Jakarta at the time, covering stories in the Philippines and elsewhere. And I was living this entirely different life. I was moving from New York City to L.A. with a very cold stint teaching playwriting in Madison, Wisconsin for a semester. <laughs> very lonely existence, but a very uh, stereotypical young playwright's the poet's existence. So, and so partly we started there, you know, writing to each other about just, just what we were up to and sort of, I think, relishing in the ironies of how different and in some ways how similar our lives were because that was part of what was fascinating to me at the beginning was how much I identified with Paul's line of work in that it's incredibly high stakes, incredibly taxing. He's in pursuit of the quote-unquote truth all things I could identify with as an artist, and yet he's actually risking his life, which I don't do. He's actually leaving the comfort of his laptop and lamp and, you know, dark room, which I rarely do. I was fascinated by the sameness and the difference that, that we seem to share. So, you know, we emailed probably for about two years, I would say, before... I finally felt, and while we were emailing, I, I was doing research and reading and rereading his work and others. And I had a first draft. I knew the play would be a kind of deconstructed documentary in the sense that it, you know, I wanted to be as close to documentary as possible. Deconstructed in the sense that it would have a certain style to it, and that I would be a character in it, in a way that maybe you might see with like Gonzo journalism or something. So the first half of the play I wrote in 2009, late 2009, which was much more about Paul's career and us getting to know each other from afar. And the second half of the play is our meeting in the Arctic, in which um, it becomes a much more conversational, it becomes a much more naturalistic play. Throughout the play, you know, people who read the play years ago and it was first getting out there, the people that uh, read it and said, oh, this is actually pretty funny. <laughs> Those are the people that I know that I know actually got the play because it's, of course, it's full of some really difficult and intense things. But there's a great deal of humor because, in many ways, it's a play about friendship. It's a play about getting to to know each other and to like each other. It's about you know storytelling and it's a cliche term now, but witnessing each other's traumas as a way forward from trauma. So by 2010, I had a finished first draft. And then, you know, a new play enters years of development with all kinds of readings and, you know, different theaters becoming somewhat interested. And the first production was in 2012 in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and then it's just been, you know, having 
productions here and there since then. So, so what's been the response? What how, what have people said about the play and about Paul's story? People, some of them, I think people might be more honest with Paul than they are with me. Cause it's <laughs> such a it's such a fraught thing to talk to a playwright, especially right after the play, because all I want to hear is it's perfect and I loved it. <laughs> Don't change a word. You know, I'm too fragile. I can't hear anything else. But I do know that people, many people, maybe, you know, the majority of the people that see the play understand that it's less a play about war or geopolitical war than it is a play about the war within. And that's a phrase that, that Paul uses all the time. The idea that, you know, we all carry either, you know, raging wars within, or at least the memories of wars uh, in our past, psychological, emotional, sometimes quite literal. And the question of the play is, you know, what do we do with that? How do we uh, heal? And I think the play has some hopeful, um, not answers, but some hopeful inclinations. You know, I don't, I don't think there is a solution to war, or even a solution to the war within. I think uh, you know, life is 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 always going to be a struggle to some degree, but I think the play offers some ways through it. And the people that that get the play and seem moved by the play reflect some version of that that idea to me. I participated with Dan in what they call in the theater world a talkback in Philadelphia after a production there, and a, a woman after we had finished came from the audience up to the edge of the stage and and sort of grabbed my hand and and said you know what you're what you were speaking about really touched me because my mother is a holocaust survivor and she said i've never been able to speak to her about it and i can't i i can't really come to know my mother and to understand everything that we've gone through in life until I understand what she went through in the Holocaust. And we spoke about it you know, for a few minutes, and, and she went off. Then there was the production in New York, also a talk back with Dan. At the end of that, a woman approached me at the edge of the stage, and she grabbed my hand again, and she said, do you remember me? And I didn't really. And she started to speak, and then immediately I understood remembered who she was, she said, I spoke to my mother. She's telling me about the Holocaust now. And I, you know, I, I said, I, I, I don't need to hear anything else. You know, it's, it's that, that's, that's where we want to get. Yeah, I, I've received a lot of, you know, several emails from people who have written to me about a similar idea of a you know, father who was a, you know, a Korean War vet, and I've never been able to talk about it with his experiences, you know, and how this play stirred up a lot of those emotions for the adult son. So, you know, I think even though Paul and I were much too close in age for us to be father-son, I think because we're still a different generation, it does seem to elicit some strong feelings, you know, with adult children who have parents who have lived through you know, literal war trauma. Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, listening to you both speak, I, I get the, you know, Paul had this experience. He had this, you know, he took this photo. He had had his life as a reporter 
and it impacted you and and you you know he used his skills to 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 pass on something that he was witnessing and experiencing to try to communicate to other people and to to cause an impact or create a reaction and it it reached out to his story reaches out to you and then now you're you know taking his story and his experience and and turning it into a play that that impacts other people beyond just what that photo did and beyond what yeah. what, what what the experience is i mean that's the that's it's a wonderful thing about this type of communication this type of you know starting with a, a journalism a, you know witnessing a moment reporting a moment and then you know you seeing that there is a, a receptor there that there's a the photographer who in of himself has has a story that comes out of this and and that impacts other people it's just something that just keeps growing and growing yeah no that's the you know that's the hope at least that that's because that's the that's sort of the ideal situation at least when it comes to to a play from my perspective you know that it can be such a communal experience for the audience such a relatively private experience, you know, even if it's a large theater. Mm -hmm. When you compare it to seeing a movie or, you know, watching a movie alone with your laptop, you know, it's a very uh, human experience to see a play. So if it does reach you or affect you, you know, all I wanted to do with the play was to help an audience feel what I felt hearing Paul's story and getting to know him. And I wanted the audience to feel changed to the degree that I feel changed hearing Paul's story and getting to know him. So again, even though it's a kind of corny phrase, you know, I also could feel like a vessel for this story, you know, and, and then shaping this story to fit the theater, as I understood the theatrical story. And that's a gift, you know, it didn't, it's to me. To be to be able to feel like I'm here to help this story along, and I just feel lucky that you know so many people seem to have have uh, understood the play as I intended. So, what do you what do you think about that, Paul? There's something about the nature of journalism. It's it's got to do with with the way we're trained, the way we the way we tell stories. It's also got to do with the egos involved, and you know other elements but but in the end what it tends to do more often than not i'm afraid is suck the humanity out of human stories dan has put the humanity back in it and it to me like rehydrating a dried flower it it just comes to life in a way that that journalism sort of put it in this this artificial little box and people put it on the shelf and Dan has brought it back to life. And, and that's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. It, it, it's pretty amazing to think about that, how this story has, has just grown and it's, I mean, it could have been something that, you know, this photo ends up in a book and it's all of all the other photos that are, that are saved in that book and they're sort of forgotten. And, but the emotion behind it is something that lives on because in drama, which is the, you know, the oldest, you know, basic communication, the most personal communication that continues to, to resonate and create uh, reactions and, and generate emotions among people. It's a pretty, pretty powerful experience. And, you know, especially in the age we live in, where there's one atrocity after another, 
they become events and we say okay isn't that terrible and then that event passes and then there's a period of of we think about something else and then there's another terrible event and it just becomes a series of compartmentalized events it's not about events it's about humanity it's about who we are as people in the early part of the 21st century that's that's what journalism's missing Wrapping up this special 200th episode, I'd like to thank a few people. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Megan Clordy and Jolie Lee, who uh, helped get this whole thing started about four years ago. Also, I'd like to thank the following people who contributed to the production of the podcast in various ways over the years. Anna Myers, Sean McCauley, Ellen Cordesoja, Atwan Kwan, Julia O'Donohue, and Emily Kopp. Amber Healy and Nicole Lagrisco. Amber and Nicole are still on the team and helping us out every week. Amber writes the web pieces, and Nicole helps me to produce the audio for the podcast. A special thanks goes to Tiffany Shackelford and Jason Zaragoza of our media partner, the Association of Alternative News Media. They post our podcasts every week, and they help us find some great guests to talk to. I'd also like to thank my boss, Lisa Wolf, for letting us use Federal News Radio Studios to record our little podcast. And I'd really like to thank my family, especially what my wife, Fran. Uh, I could not have done this without their love and their uh, support. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this podcast. I do this because I like talking to smart people about journalism, people who are hopeful about the future of our industry. I hope you get something out of it as well. If you do, Please let us know by email, uh, editor at itsalljournalism.com or my personal Gmail account, uh, moconnell207 at gmail.com. And uh, find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at All Journalism. If uh, you've got an idea for a guest or you think you might be a good guest or you know of a good topic that we can discuss, please let us know. A lot of the ideas that we get for this podcast come from emails and things we see on Facebook and on Twitter. So let us know. 200 is a pretty big number. Let's see if we can make that grow. Next time on It's All Journalism. That is really the, the North Star and what is guiding me, which is what what is the goal here? Am I trying to get the audience or readers to understand some big change has happened, right? Some sort of like, you know, in some type of really large increase or decrease, and it's drastic, and it's really going to affect us because something happened. If that's the case, oftentimes it might just be a really simple bar chart or line chart. And then as it gets more and more complicated, and as the message gets more and more nuanced, that's sort of where the different types of data visualization comes in. And I start to consider what are all the other ways I could show this to be more effective. In our next episode, we talk to C.C. Way of ProPublica about graphic design and learning to code. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>